if this doctrine here does not affect you, does not humble you, and make you long for the salvation of people, you do not understand anything about grace. Don't change the message. Don't soften the message. Don't make the message more attractive. You keep preaching. You cannot resist. It's given to you, and this gift is the gift of believing. And once you believe, you embrace Jesus, you embrace the suffering servant, therefore you will suffer also. So much of the church nowadays is just to bring unbelievers and entertain them. Then you're not, it's not a church anymore. It's a club. Same preacher. Same message. Same natural conditions. And yet two very opposite responses. One group mock and reject, and the other group what? Embraces, believe, accept the message. And the question is, why do some people believe and embrace Jesus while others reject Jesus Christ? There are only two answers. There are only two answers. You either give all the glory to God and you say that God saved you, or you rob God of His glory and you say that you chose to accept Jesus. can go first to Acts chapter 8. Verses 2 and 3 are important here in chapter 8 because sometimes people say the, the death of Stephen softened Saul's heart and there is nothing that in the text that says that the death of Stephen soft, softened Saul's heart. It's actually the opposite. The death of Stephen actually hardened even more the heart of Saul. So in verse 2 of chapter 8 says, Devote men... Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now chapter 9. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now let's jump to verse 19. There's a drastic change that takes place. It says, second part of verse 19, For some days he, referring to Saul or Paul, he was with the disciples at Damascus, and immediately... He proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon his name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength, and confounded Jews who live in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. You may be seated. Let us ask the Lord for His blessing once again. Father, we are beggars. We are needy children. And we need Your food. We need You to 
provide for us. Speak to us. You tell us that we who are evil give good gifts to our children. How much more you will not give us the Holy Spirit. So we pray for a new measure of the Holy Spirit. That the Holy Spirit be working in us. Help me to be faithful. Help this congregation to be faithful, Lord. Do what only you can do. And that is to sanctify and save people, Lord. Lord, we are singing here. And we say, Amen. Pity the nations, O our God. Constrain the earth to come. Send thy victorious word abroad and bring the strangers home. So please, send right now your victorious word into this place. Bring the strangers home. Sanctify your people. Because we want to see your people singing thy redeeming grace forever and ever. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. In John chapter 6, in John chapter 6, we have Jesus preaching to a large crowd of people. And you can just picture Jesus and he's preaching to a large group of people that they came to listen to Jesus. They want to make him king by force. And after Jesus finishes preaching, we have a very interesting reaction of the crowd. So we read in John chapter 6, says, So the Jews grumbled about Jesus. And verse 65 says, After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with Jesus. So we have these people grumbling and walking away, rejecting Christ. One group of people hearing the message is rejecting Jesus. So Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? And look at Peter answering on behalf of the other, said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. A large group of people rejects, grumbles, walks away. And one group of people embrace Jesus, they love Jesus, and they follow Jesus. Same preacher, same message, same group of people, same earthly and natural environment conditions, and yet two very opposite responses, amen? Same preacher, same message, same group of people, same weather, and yet, two opposite responses. Similarly, when Paul is preaching in Athens, as, he's, as he finishes preaching, we read in Acts chapter 17. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. Others said, oh, we will hear you again about this. Rejection. So Paul went out from their midst. But some men joined him and believed among whom were also Dionysius and a woman named Damaris and others with them. Brothers and sisters, same preacher, same message, same natural conditions, and yet two very opposite responses. One group mock and reject, and the other group what? Embraces, believe. Accept the message. 
And the question is, why do some people believe and embrace Jesus while others reject Jesus Christ? Why do some people in the same, imagine the same group of people, why do some embrace Jesus as their King, Lord, Savior, the lover of their souls, and others mock, walk away, and are indifferent to Jesus Christ? As we were singing, why was I, I made to hear thy voice and enter while there is room when thousands make a wretched, wretched choice and rather starve than come? Why did you embrace the gospel? Why did you follow Jesus? And some of you here know this very well. In your own family, maybe you are the only one who is following Christ. Sometimes you have one household... Same upbringing, same parents. And you end up having one who is a missionary and one who is a drug dealer. Why? There are only two answers. There are only two answers. You either give all the glory to God and you say that God saved you, or you rob God of His glory and you say that you chose to accept Jesus. And then you are better somehow than the other people. From the moment you said, I, I chose Jesus, without His mighty grace changing you, you're robbing God of His glory. And when you get to heaven, you can never throw your crowns at his feet. You've got to keep the crown with you because you believe to be the one who chose Jesus Christ. So as we continue, especially as we continue our study, what makes us a Reformed Baptist church? We have been looking at the aspect of being reformed. And you're looking at these five points of the doctrines of grace and we have been seeing how grace initiated, grace accomplished, and grace applied is all the work of the triune God. And that's the beauty of this aspect of the Reformed teachings, that the Trinity receives all the glory. God the Father initiating, electing, choosing. God the Son dying for His people. And God the Spirit applying that work in the life of God's people. David Gibson and Jonathan, they say, The Trinity orchestrates the symphony of salvation in all its movements. The Father elects and sends, and sends. The Son becomes incarnate and dies. The Spirit draws and vivifies. But while their works are distinct, they are not independent. The Father elects in Christ the incarnate Son offers Himself on the cross through the eternal Spirit to the Father, and the Spirit is sent by the Father and the Son to draw and seal the elect. So He says, grounded in the mutual indwelling of their persons, the Father, Son, and Spirit together serve the shared goal of our salvation. The Spirit serves the Son by applying what He accomplished on the cross, the Son serves the Spirit by making His indwelling possible. And both Son and the Spirit together on their twofold mission from the Father serve the Father and minister to us. Any other system of teaching will break the Trinity. Any other system where 
You believe that the Father chose some, that Jesus came and died for all, and that the Holy Spirit is now confused and tried to draw some or whoever, you are breaking the Trinity. And that's the beauty of this Reformed aspect of viewing God and salvation as a work of the Trinity. So, as we continue developing this theme, we are going to keep following the same outline. Irresistible grace defined, irresistible grace verified, and you're going to pick up where we stop. That is irresistible grace in the New Testament. But before we go there, let's just review. It's always important to be reminded, amen, what we saw last Sunday. And we saw the definition. What does it mean, irresistible grace? Right? Because there is a grace that we resist. But we are talking about the saving grace of God, the covenantal grace of saving His people. And the doctrine of irresistible grace teaches that God's grace, His power, His will in salvation, they're greater than the sinner's hardness of heart. Amen? When God chooses to save someone, there is nothing on, he- on heaven on earth that will stop God. And that's very important because, brothers and sisters, when we understand total depravity, what sin affected in us, when we understand that sin makes us incapable and unwilling to come to God, irresistible grace becomes a treasure. Because then we have a God who is doing what man cannot do, and that is to change the will. And it's here where all the other religions fall apart from the Reformed view of salvation. All other teachings, brothers and sisters, all other teachings, they will hold to some sort of synergism. What is synergism? God and man working together. Just this view here that holds to a monergistic work of salvation. God alone working in saving His people. We can reject God. We can say, no, no, I'm not going to serve Him. I hate Him. I hate the gospel. Until He says, that's enough. And then He invades us with His grace and changes us. And suddenly we, who once hated Him, we love Him. So the gospel of Jesus becomes irresistible by the operation and the evasion of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And keep in mind, especially as we are walking through this series here, this study, that you have irresistible grace or effectual call and regeneration. They are all synonyms. They're all working together here. The new birth. I was thinking about uh, regeneration. As you go through the major creeds in church history, it's fascinating that they don't have a, a session on, there is no portion in the creeds about regeneration. And regeneration is a vital topic in the Christian faith. Instead, they have what? Effectual call. So if you go through the Westminster Convention, the 1689, the Canons of Dort, they're going to be talking about regeneration under the heading of effectual call. So, let's verify what we defined earlier, last Sunday. And we saw, as we look at the Bible, if you hold the Bible in your hands, all the pages of the Bible is telling one story. Amen? It's not different stories, it's one story. One major story of a God who saves. It's the story of a God who has mercy on His people, and He irresistibly draws them to Him. 
He rescued His people from sin and death and darkness to Himself. We saw in the Old Testament, last Lord's Day, I don't have time to go through the whole Old Testament again, but we saw that from creation, God calling Adam after the fall, God calling things into existence. We saw Noah, Abraham, Moses, Israel, David, the Ninevites, and so many other examples in the Old Testament show that it's only through God's effectual call and irresistible grace that sinners can come to Him. Amen? Every time in the Old Testament, it's by God's initiating grace and mighty grace that people believe and come to Him. So today we're going to continue, and we're going to come to the New Testament, where we stopped last Lord's Day. And you're going to go, you can open, probably your Bibles are opening Acts. So that's the first book you're going to be walking through quickly. And let me remind you that the book of Acts is the book of Acts of the risen Lord Jesus. And what we see in the book of Acts is that the Lord Jesus is building His church by His Spirit and by His Word, and no one can stop it. That's the book of Acts. What is a summary of the book of Acts? How can you summarize with one sentence? What is the book of Acts all about? The reason Lord Jesus, through His Spirit, through His Word, building His church, and nothing, nothing will stop it. The book of Acts opens by showing the unstoppable power of the Holy Spirit. And He's right there, right in the beginning of Acts, cutting the hearts, piercing the hearts, and regenerating those same men who killed Jesus weeks earlier. That's fascinating. A few weeks earlier, those people killed Jesus. And now in Acts 2, you have some weeks later, those same people who hated Jesus now being pierced to the heart and doing what? Embracing Jesus and following Him. So in Acts chapter 2, as you have the glorious sermon of Peter on the day of Pentecost, Peter says that the promise of salvation is for you, for your children, for all who are far off. And then he explained who these people are. Everyone what? Whom the Lord our God calls to Himself. Because he says, call upon the name of the Lord and you'll be saved. And now he explains that only those whom the Lord called first will be able to call upon the name of the Lord. In Acts chapter 16, I invite you to turn to Acts chapter 16, your Bibles. Acts chapter 16. Remember the, the Lord prevents Paul of going to where he wants to go, and he takes Paul to a different journey. The men of Macedonia say, come here, come Paul. And then as Paul comes to Philippi, and you remember he's going to Philippi and he finds a group of women. And these women were praying. They had a time of prayer. And look in Acts 16, verse 14. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods. And here it says, who was a worshiper of God. And I need to pause here. And she's not a Christian. A worshiper of God in the book of Acts was the way of referring to the Gentiles who became proselytes. So this woman here, she's not a Christian. She was a Gentile who embraced Judaism. 
And that was the label that they would use, a God-fearer, a God-worshipper. But she needs to be saved. She needs Christ. And look, it says, And the Lord what? The Lord what? The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And look at the next verse. What happens afterwards? And after she was, what? Baptized. The Lord opened her heart. She embraced Christ. And now she's identifying herself with Jesus Christ. In verse 14, it says that the Lord opened her heart. The Greek word there is going to be used in chapter 16. Look at verse 26. And suddenly there was a great earthquake. Remember, Paul is in prison with Silas, and they're singing and praying. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were what? All the doors were what? By an earthquake. That same word used for the heart of Lydia. Her heart was what? Open. Open. The locked doors of the Roman prison were flung wide open with the earthquake. And what Luke's telling us, in a very similar way, in the spiritual realm, the doors of Lydia's heart were flung open by God's grace in order for the Word to come and bear fruit in her life. And God alone has the key to people's hearts. God alone has the key to people's hearts. Spurgeon said, The Lord alone can cut the bands which fasten the heart. He alone can put the key into the hole of the door and open it and get admittance for himself. He is the heart's maker, the master, and conversion in every case is the Lord's work alone. Amen? Nobody can open his own heart. We need God to first open our hearts. In Acts 18... In Acts 18, you see what we saw last Lord's Day, the necessity of the, the call, the verbal call, the vocatio verbalis, the call of the preacher. And Paul is suffering persecution. And then the Lord said to Paul, Acts 18, verses 9 through 10, and the Lord said to Paul on a night vision, do not be afraid. Why? There is fear. It's becoming useless, my time here, Lord. It's just persecution, no salvation. Do not be afraid, but go on, on, what? Speaking, preaching. Do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are, what? My people. Don't change the message. Don't soften the message. Don't make the message more attractive. You keep preaching, because I have my people there, and they will come. As we move to Paul's letters, Paul, we see how often Paul called Christians the called ones. That was a, one of Paul's favorite labels for Christians was the called ones. The called ones. And he's not referring to this general call, but the call of God in their lives. So for, uh, Thomas Schreiner, he, help us, he helps us understand Paul's view of calling. He says, the power of God's grace is communicated particularly in the word calling. In the Pauline, the Pauline literature, 
The word should not be defined as an invitation that can be accepted or refused. Calling is performative, in which the call accomplishes what is demanded. That's how Paul sees calling. And that's why he says in Romans 8, we saw that He says, uh, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also uh, called, and whom he called, he justified, and those who he justified, he glorified. So if everybody has the same calling, then everybody will be glorified. So that's why it makes the difference. There is a group of people whom God foreknew, he loved before, he predestined, and then he called with a mighty calling. And these people then, once they heard that calling, a new life, they believed they were justified. And because they were justified, now they're embraced by Jesus. They walk a holy life and they will be glorified. In Romans 9, Paul says that God's purpose of election might continue. Look at how fascinating it is. He says, not because of works, but because of... You'd expect Paul to say, not because of works, but because of... Faith, right? That's what we'd expect. Because there is this, always this contrast between works and faith. But Paul, he doesn't say faith, he does what? Calling. Do you know why? Because calling precedes faith. That's why he says, For God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of Him who calls. And once God calls you, creates new life, then you believe and have faith. Another important text, Philippians 1. Philippians 1, verse 29. Paul says, For it has been what? Has been given, has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe, but also uh, suffer. For the Christian, you have these two, it's one package, it's one gift. And that's placed, you cannot resist. It's given to you, and this gift is the gift of believing. And once you believe, you embrace Jesus, you embrace the suffering servant, therefore you will suffer also. But you see how believing is a gift of God that He gives to you. Second Thessalonians, we see the same thing. Paul saying to this, He called you through our gospel. He called you, that's the vocatio efficax. He called you through the gospel. The vocatio verbalis. He called you with this mighty call through the preaching, the verbal preaching of the gospel. As we move to First Peter, the general epistles, you can see in 1 Peter chapter 2, Peter says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. We were blind to the excellencies of Christ until he called us out of darkness into light, and then we were able to behold him and love him and treasure him. In 1 John 5, that's a very important text. And sometimes it's hard in English. 
says, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ, he has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has, whoever has been born of him. First of all, you see that he says, whoever loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. That's why if you don't love the church, you don't love the Father. You don't love God. If you love God the Father, you love his people. But what, in, in our subject here, he says, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ, he has been born of God. The Greek sentence is important because it says that it was because you were born of God that you believed Jesus. The verb tense there is because you were born of God, now you believe Jesus. We have messed up. We have, we, we have messed up this whole view and we think that by believing I'm born again. The Bible is very clear. By being born again, you uh, believe. And the last book of the New Testament, Revelation. Revelation chapter 17. We hear of the ten horns waging war against the Lord. Verse 14 says, They will make war on the Lamb, and the Lamb will conquer them. For He is Lord of lords and King of kings. And here we have three descriptions of the Christian, the church. And those with Him are the called, chosen, and faithful. Called, chosen, and faithful. Beautiful, beautiful description. One scholar says, The saints cannot take credit for belonging to the Lamb, for they have been called by God's grace. The calling here is effectual. It's a calling that inducts them into the kingdom. and There is no way to refuse that call. So we see from... From Moses, I would say from Moses, Genesis to Revelation, that's what we saw last Sunday, now this Sunday. We see how irresistible grace or effectual call is the fruit of God's sovereign and gracious work. Because of sin, total inability, no one can come to God unless the Spirit of God transforms the heart, giving the sinner a new heart. Amen? So we walk from Genesis to Revelation. But it's missing one special group of texts, and that is the Gospels. So let's see what the Lord Jesus said about that. And the Lord Jesus is the champion in preaching this glorious doctrine. We see as we open the Gospels, and especially if we go to the Gospel of Mark, right in the beginning of the Gospel of Mark, we see this doctrine of effectual call displayed to all to see. And it's in display by when he calls the disciples. So, for example, in Mark chapter 2, verse 14, Remember Levi? Was Levi following Jesus? Was Levi interested in Jesus? Was Levi attracted to the gospel? What did Levi love? Money. Do you remember? Levi loved money. And we read, And as he, Jesus, passed, he saw, look at the shepherd, Huh, found my sheep. Sounds like accident, right? No. He knows where his sheep is, and he's coming to rescue. He saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, what? Follow me. Follow me. And he rose and followed him. That's exactly what we're singing. Charles Wesley was an Armenian, but all his hymns were very Calvinistic, reformed Know that Jesus calls the disciples in a very triumphant and irresistible way. 
It's, it's like the disciples can do nothing but come to Him. And that's a beautiful illustration of all the sinners. We are all minding our own business when Jesus came and rescued us. In John, Jesus talks about the new birth. He talks very frequently about the new birth. So, for example, in John chapter 1, verses 12 through 13, we read, But to all who did receive Him, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God. And then people say, do you see, you need to believe, you need to accept, amen. We all need to believe, we need to repent, we need to embrace, hallelujah. But notice that the verse doesn't stop there. Now, he's going to explain how people believe and embrace and come to Jesus. Look at that, he gave the right to become children of God who were not born... Not of blood, not the will of the flesh, nor the will of men, but of God. How did the people come to believe and receive the adoption? Not by the will of men, but not by the blood. And you think about what Jesus is teaching us through this text. Is the blood is, is not your lineage. It's not your descendant. Oh, I come from a Christian family, therefore I'm a Christian. No. Especially the Jews. I'm the son of Abraham. That's not how that works. That's not how that works. He says, not the will of the flesh. The flesh produces nothing spiritually. Moving people to tears at church service will not produce the kind of change that transforms us. Amen? That's why we don't turn off the lights and have a, a, a wonderful song playing, trying to touch your hearts. No, the Word of God needs to touch your hearts. And he says, not the will of man. So he, here he smashes all the three views that people think when they talk about salvation. And then he says in verse 13, but of God. You have to be born of God. In, in John chapter 3, he's going to use the same metaphor where, where, when he's talking to Nicodemus. Do you remember he's talking to Nicodemus? And, and he tells Nicodemus, no one can see, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless what? He's born from above. He's born again. Let me ask you, what did you do to be born? Did you do anything? Did you choose the hospital, the day, the time? No. We didn't do anything. That's why the birth, the, the, the birth metaphor is so powerful. Jesus is using this metaphor because it's clear you did nothing. You're simply born. Your mom did everything. Right? The mom did everything in birthing you. You were there comfortable in that womb. You didn't want to come out. The mom makes all the hard labor. And that's the picture that is the, the God of heaven who does all the work in making you a new creature. So, John chapter 6. Let's move to John chapter 6. John chapter 6 is probably one of the most powerful chapters in the Bible where you have all the doctrines of grace in full display. In verse 37, Jesus says, you can open there, John chapter 6, verse 37. 
He says, all that the Father gives me, what? Might come. Maybe will come. Probably will come. All that the Father gives me will come. That's certainty. All the elected ones, all the chosen ones of the Father, they will come to me. There is nothing that can stop them from coming to me. But the question is, how will they come? If there is total inability, if because of sin no one can come to Jesus, how will they come? Right? Jesus says, no one can come to me. And now he says, they will come. How will they come? So the answer is given to us in verse 44. Look at verse 44. No one can come to me. No one. What does no one mean? Absolutely no one. No one. No one can come to me. Can there is not permission. It's can there. The verb of power, ability, no one has the power, no one has the ability to come to me. What is to come to Jesus? To believe in Him, embrace Him, unless, unless it's a conditional, demands a condition, unless the Father who sent me, what? Draws Him. No one can come to Jesus. First Jesus says, they will come to me. And then He explains, they will come to me because the Father will do what? Draw them. Sometimes we have a, a light view of the word draw, drawing, as if it were wooing, just drawing. Actually, this Greek word is important to understand how it's used. The Luenira, uh, a, a, a Greek lexicon, writes the following about Helkuo. It says, this word is, means to pull or drag, requiring force because of the inertia of the object being dragged. This word is used, so you can see how this word is used throughout the New Testament. So this word is used for Simon Peter when he pulls, he draws his sword. He was not saying, sword, come here to my hand. No, there is force. You've got to put your hand in your sword. You need to draw that. There is force. You're pulling that thing. That same word is used when you have the disciples dragging a net full of fish. It's heavy, requires work. You have the same word being used when Paul is being dragged through the city, through the streets of the city. It requires force. So the word that Jesus used here and says no one can accept him unless the Father draws. It's much more than a simply inviting or flirting, wooing. It has the picture of laying hands and dragging. Dragging the old, dead heart out of the person and giving a new one. He overcomes our unwillingness and drags us to the throne of grace. He destroys and drags us out of the hostility that won't separate us and make us willing in the day of His power. So, that's a powerful verse. No one can come to me unless what? Unless the Father what? Forcefully drags the hostile heart out of the person. It's like a surgery. And you have that nasty, hard heart that needs to be changed. 
And you, you can't just be there calling, come out of their heart, jump out of there. No, you need to cut. You need to make a surgery. You need to pull the heart out of there. And that's what Jesus is telling us. In John chapter 10, the last one for us here in the Gospels, also one of those majestic chapters is the doctrines of grace. Jesus says in verses 14 through 16, I am the good shepherd. He's referred to himself as the long-expected Messiah that was to come, the fulfillment of all the Old Testament expectations. And then he says, I know. Remember, the know is the covenantal love. A husband knows his wife. And then she bears a child. It's a covenantal knowing. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for whom? The sheep. The definite article. His sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold in Israel. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock and one shepherd. I must bring them also. And know what? And they will come. I must, they will. Whenever Jesus says, must, Spurgeon says, something comes out of it. Who can resist the all-powerful one? Clear out, devils. Clear out, wicked men. Flee darkness. Die, O death. If Jesus says, must, we know what's going to happen. Difficulties vanish. Impossibilities are achieved. Glory, glory. The Lord shall get the victory. Amen. So who can stop the elect from coming to Jesus' fold? Communism? ISIS? Islam? Hinduism? Buddhism? The Roman Catholic? Who can stop? No one. No one. And the Lord will use whatever means He has to take His people to proclaim the good news. And sometimes he's going to use persecution so his people come out of the comfort and they're going to spread and proclaim the gospel where his sheep are. And brothers and sisters, that was the truth that was the engine behind the missionary movement. Think about William Carey, John Patton, Adonair Judson. All these men they were motivated by these doctrines here. They knew that Jesus had sheep in other places. And they knew that they were going to come to him when they heard the gospel. And that's what made them go and preach the gospel. Remember reading about William Carey when he was about to go to India. And then he went to India and people asked, one, one man in India asked him, Why did you take so long to come? And he answered, God's sovereignty. And he said, you know what? The more time you guys spend in idolatry, in the darkness, the more glory he will receive by seeing how irresistible his grace is from drawing you out of this paganism where you have been for so long. So God delayed a little to make his grace so glorious. 
So Jesus says, I must bring them also and they will listen to my voice. And how will they listen? Through the preaching. That's why Paul says in Romans 10, how will they call on the name of the Lord? They must listen. How will they listen if nobody's going and preaching? So brothers and sisters, let me just finish. Jesus says that I must bring them also and they will come. Let me just give a beautiful, a beautiful display of this truth. And that's the life of Paul, the apostle Paul, also known as Saul. Paul experienced in his own life how when Jesus says, I must bring him also and he will come. No one can say, no, I'm not coming. Amen? No one can say, I'm not coming. When he says, you must come, you will come. Paul was a trophy of irresistible grace displayed for all to see that God's saving grace in his elect is violent, intrusive, and all-conquering. And yes, Paul is very unique. He's an apostle. Nobody else is an apostle like him. But it's fascinating what he tells us. He says that his salvation is an example of all who get saved. So he says in 1 Timothy 1, The saying is trustworthy and deserving, full of acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me... As the foremost, Jesus Christ might display His perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in Him for eternal life. Paul is saying that everyone who is saved is saved just like Him, by God's mighty grace. Amen? We are all saved in the same manner, by God's gracious initiative. And that's what Paul is telling us. And what is glorious to see, as we read earlier today, the life of Paul, prior to being conquered by the grace of God. So in Acts 8, describes Saul as literally a wild animal, mangling and mauling the church. But Saul was ravaging the church, and entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. And in God's irony and sarcasm, God's going to drag him <laughs> up. Or in Acts 9, tells us that Paul is just like a beast. You think about a bull or uh, an animal who is angry and the, <laughs> the filming. Acts 9 says, but Saul is still breathing threats. That's the air that he breathes, brothers and sisters, threats. He lives by threatening the church. He lives out of hate towards the church. against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked for him for letters of the synagogue, the mass, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. And here is the conquering one, binding him and bringing him to the new Jerusalem, the greater Jerusalem. So we have this description of Saul, Paul, and then suddenly we have the jaw-dropping, confusing, strange description of Paul in Acts 9, verses 19 through 22. Wait a second. We just read in verses 1 and 2 that this man is destroying the church. 
And then in verses 19 to 22, we read, For some days Paul or Saul was with the disciples at Damascus, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. <laughs> what happened? Brothers and sisters, what happened between verses 1 and 2 and verse 19? What happened between verses 1 and 2 and verse 19? Irresistible grace. That's the only explanation. God conquered this man. God came and invaded him. The grace of God was not anemic, powerless, was not a simple invitation, but was intrusive, transformative, and all-conquering. No wonder when Paul is giving his testimony in Philippians chapter 3, look how he says in Philippians chapter 3, not that I have already obtained this or have already accomplished. There is much, there is much to do in the Christian life, he's saying. But I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus what? took hold of me. That's military language. That's language of war. And Paul is picturing himself as a soldier of the kingdom of darkness, fighting against Jesus. And if you know about war, you know that once someone took hold of you, conquered you, you became what? A slave. No wonder Paul refers to himself as Paul, a slave of Jesus Christ. I love what F.F. Bruce says. He writes the following. Paul recalls his conversion as the occasion on which a powerful hand was laid on his shoulder, turning him right around in his tracks, and a voice that brooked no refusal spoke in his ear, You must come along with me. Paul was conscripted into the service of Christ, but, nev but never was there a more willing conscript. He says, The passion of his life from that hour on was to serve this new master and fulfill the purpose for which he had conscripted him. Every phase of Paul's subsequent life and action, every element in his understanding and preaching of the gospel can be traced back to the revelation of Jesus Christ that was granted to him there and then. When the Lord laid violent hands upon him and dragged him. We were singing earlier, but as I ran my hellbound race, remember, indifferent to the cost, you look upon my helpless state and led me to the cross. That's exactly what happens with us. We are minding our own business, indifferent to the cross, indifferent to the gospel, and the Lord comes. I said, no, no, let me change you. From that day on, everything changed in Paul's life. Jesus set his life in a new direction, and the same with all of us. The Holy Spirit cannot be stopped. God will not be stopped. The violent grace breaks the impenetrable gates of our hearts and changes our hearts to make us willing, eager, and passionate to receive Christ. To borrow Revelation 6, He rides on the white horse with His bow and arrow, conquering, 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 conquering His people. It's the power of the gospel. Amen? So to finish really quickly here, let's finish by applying this to our lives. How can we apply this doctrine? There are so many ways that we can apply this. 
So let me just remind you that irresistible grace feels and inflames evangelism and missions. Some people think that if you believe in these doctrines, that will kill evangelism. No. That's the field, that's the engine for evangelism and missions. Why? Because we know that Christ has His people and that He will bring them. The Holy Spirit is the author of regeneration, the work of changing the will. And God has appointed the means of salvation. What are the means of salvation? The preaching of the gospel. Amen? God has His people. Christ died for His people. And the means to apply that the Holy Spirit will apply the saving work is through the preaching of the gospel. And that's why we keep preaching. We must keep preaching because that's what God used to bring His people. We preach, we exhort, we call people to repent, we call people to come to the arms of Jesus knowing that ultimately is the work of the Lord in doing that. Not my work. So I encourage us to keep preaching, keep praying for the lost. Keep showing your lives to be an example of true Christianity. We have a responsibility to preach, call people to repent. But we know that ultimately we cannot do that. The Lord must do. He must come inside the person's heart and change the heart. So as a church, we will not implement carnal, worldly means to draw people to Jesus, okay? Don't even bring me the newest book on how to make the church grow. I'm not interested, and I'm going to throw in the garbage. The means is the proclamation of the gospel, preaching the word in season, out of season. When people want to hear, when people don't want to hear, we keep preaching. That's God's means, amen? We will not appeal to emotionalism, sentimentalism. But we will be full of affection and feelings for the lost. If this doctrine here does not affect you, does not humble you, and make you long for the salvation of people, you do not understand anything about grace. Second, the purity of the church in the doctrine of irresistible grace, we saw that the name church implies what? The called out ones. And we must make sure that the church resembles the true nature of the church, the called out ones out of darkness. We must strive to make sure that the church is composed of those who are holy, set apart to the Lord, those who are called out of darkness into light. Amen? So much of the church nowadays is just to bring unbelievers and entertain them. And then you know, it's not a church anymore. It's a club. The church is supposed to be different. People are supposed to look at the church and see as a group of people who were once in darkness, but now they are in light. They have been called out. They have been regenerated by God. So use your responsibilities, your duties as church members. We will strive to welcome Christians, exercise church discipline in order to keep the church what? Holy, pure, resembling those who are called out of darkness. Third, irresistible grace gives all the glory to the triune God. 
every salvation is a glorious display of the work of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen? Every salvation. Every salvation. That's why we baptize the new converts in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Why? Because the Trinity work together in saving that person. Every testimony, we've got to keep in mind that every testimony is majestic. Every testimony is majestic. I already said that before and I repeat, there is no boring testimony. There is no boring testimony. If you understand uh, your testimony to be boring, you don't understand your salvation. Everyone is born in rebellion to God and under His wrath. And the salvation of Paul is an example, is a display of all who are saved in Christ. Even if you grew up in a Christian home. There was a time in your life, you might not remember, but there was a time in your life where you were under God's wrath. And praise Him that He saved you early in your life. Every salvation is a marvelous work of His grace in conquering you. And if He had not saved you, you'd be heading to hell. And that's why we all, we all sing that beautiful hymn. Because that's our testimony. All of us. Long my prison. Spirit lay. Fast bound in sin and nature's night. I don't know how people can sing this and not be moved. Right? Thy night diffuse a quickening ray. I woke the dungeon flame with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose and forth and followed thee. The doctrines of grace are not supposed to be used in the court of the internet arguing with people. The doctrines of grace are supposed to be the means of worship God. Give Him all the glory. It's fascinating how people... They're so quick to believe that, G, that the Lord parted the Red Sea, that the Lord created the, the, the whole earth. And people are so quick to believe that there was Noah and God preserved Noah. And they're so quick to believe that Jesus raised Lazarus from the death. And then suddenly they cannot believe that God was the one who called you out of darkness into light. That makes no sense. We will give glory to God. We will give Him all the glory. He deserves all the glory. Amen? Let us pray. Father, we, we praise You and we thank You. We thank You for Your mighty mercy. A mercy that's powerful. A grace that's triumphant. That conquered us. And this morning, we want to give You all the glory. Deliver us from thinking that we deserve any glory in the salvation of our souls. All the glory be to the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And help us, humble us. I pray that the study of these doctrines will humble us, that we long to see people being saved, that we long to see the lost coming to Jesus. And even this morning, Lord, those here who do not know you, I pray that they would run to you. I pray that the Holy Spirit would be changing their hearts, dragging them to the cross. Help them to love and embrace Jesus Christ. What a Savior. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Be magnified. 
in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.